Hi, my name is Scott and I'm a member with Restored Church. If you're new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website www.RestoredTemecula.Church and click on contact. We also have a mobile app with resources including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android app stores. With all that said, we hope you enjoyed the message. I love you guys. It is July. Lots of people are on vacation. I'm really glad that you guys are here. Uh, Tom, who's the other uh, pastor with me on staff, is in, he's gone right now. He's on vacation as well, sends his love. Uh, this morning, I have the distinct privilege of sharing a message with you guys that I've been stewing on for quite a while, and it just kind of felt like it's time to, to share it. And I want to, yeah, it's, it's, we're going to be talking out of the book of Hebrews this morning, the letter to the Hebrews, and I'm going to explain more about why this letter is important, but it's one that, for whatever reason, has been near and dear to my heart from the time that I was exploring what it meant to be a Christian until today. So going back many, many years, even before I started following Jesus, some of the words in this book have kind of haunted me, for lack of a better term. I don't know if anybody's ever been through something like this in their faith, but um, I remember like the second half of the New Testament used to just freak me out. So Peter, Hebrews, Jude, Revelation. I don't know if anybody, ever, anybody's ever been through, through anything like that where I was just like, I just want to stick with Paul. <laughs> you know, I just want to stick with Paul. Uh, but the reality is there's riches to be mined, I think, in some of the second half of the New Testament, the letter to the Hebrews. And the reason why it freaked me out is because Hebrews is full of warnings. If you've never read it before, there's something that'll pop out at you as you read it. It's full of warnings. But it's also full of tremendous comfort. It's both. And so for me, depending on where I've been at, where my heart's been at, sometimes the warnings just hit a little close to home and make me uncomfortable. And you may have an experience like that this morning as I'm sharing what I'm sharing. But I just want you to know that this is all here for your benefit. The scriptures are there for encouragement, for teaching, for instruction, so that we might grow up into righteousness. That we might have right relationship with God and with each other. And so everything that I'm sharing here with you this morning has come as a result of a lot of reflection on this text some study, and as you'll find out, some Disney Plus. So if you'll pray for me, or pray with me, we'll dive in. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that your word has a, has a way of making us deal with ourselves and deal with you in a way that kind of undoes us, but puts us back together again better than we could have ever imagined. And I pray that that's what would take place this morning that there would be maybe some undoing of things, some unlearning uh, where that needs to take place, some revelation where we need, maybe our eyesight has gone a little bit dim, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear you, hearts that are tuned into what you're saying, and a posture of openness and a willingness to go where you are leading us, Father. God, we love you. Would you have your way? I want nothing more than just you to be clear who you are, what you've done to be clear to everyone who's hearing and to starting with me. God, I love you. We love you. We thank you. 
It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I mentioned Disney Plus. One of the great, I've been, the closer and closer I get to middle age, which I think I technically am now, the more and more nostalgic I get. Anybody been through something like this? Yes. Two, three of us? Uh, so nostalgia is all the craze. I can't get enough of the 90s. I feel like the 90s, in a sense, never ended. So maybe you young people know what I'm talking about. The way that people dress in high school now looks like Christmas 1997. I'm confident that whoever decided that flannel was back, flannel like the, you guys know what I'm talking about, the flannel PJ pants, just saw mom and dad in 97, Christmas morning opening presents, was like, that's the future. And so I, I've never let it go. For me, it was never out. 1997 is still alive. Uh, there was a movie, a series of movies that actually came out in the mid-90s that were wildly popular. I'm still trying to figure out kind of why, but they were wildly popular movies. A lot of you have probably seen them. Some of you maybe have it. Some of you might have even seen like the newest iteration of these characters because there's like a new spinoff, I guess, on Disney+. Plus. I am, of course, talking about the Mighty Ducks. Okay? I'm going to talk to you today, not about the first or the second, the well-known Mighty Duck movies. I'm going to talk to you about the third, D3, <clears throat> which was like one notch above straight to DVD, if that existed at that time, straight to VHS. You guys know what I'm talking about. So if you don't know the story, the Mighty Ducks is, it's a group of misfits from the inner city of Minneapolis who come together around a coach that turns them into winners. And they have enjoyed some success together now, like in D3 is the third installment. The first movie, they won like the state championship. The second movie, they went global and beat Iceland and well, I'm ruining the movies for everybody. Not that you would necessarily be so shocked if the kids movie they're going to win. But the third movie, though, it kind of, there's this big shift that takes place. So these, this was a team that had enjoyed a lot of success together, but they weren't in the peewees anymore. The peewees, I guess, are like the minor league of hockey. Anybody grew up playing hockey? Not one. Unbelievable. Zach. Oh, okay. I thought you were pointing that at the empty seat next to you. I was like, am I, uh, maybe I don't see. Okay, Zach played a little bit of peewee hockey. So we got one person that knows what I'm talking about. But peewee hockey, I think, is like the Little League equivalent of, of hockey. They had all this success as kids. I think they were probably like 9 or 10 when they got started. But now they're like freshmen heading into high school. And so here's what ends up happening to, to this team of players. They end up getting a scholarship to this school. It's a very prestigious school. It's, it's a very wealthy school. They're there on a scholarship. They don't have to pay anything. It's a life-changing opportunity for them. But there's a big change that's taking place. If you've watched the movies, you know they, they have Coach Bombay. He's like, he's a Minnesota miracle man uh, he, who takes them from a ragtag bunch of misfits into champions. Coach Bombay is not there anymore, come part three. Why? Because Emilio Estevez had a side project that was more important. That's the true story. So he's on screen for six minutes, the best six minutes of the movie by far. Either way, they have a new coach, Coach Orion. And Coach Orion didn't care about the Ducks. Uh, he didn't care about the past. He wasn't interested in what they had accomplished together. He was interested in one thing and in one thing only, which was to get them ready for high school, get them ready for high school hockey, which I guess in Minnesota was a big deal. I'm not even sure if we have hockey teams here in Southern California. Maybe we do. High school, maybe we don't. But Minnesota, I lived there for a year. It is a huge, huge deal. 
And so one of the things that the coach had done is that he had studied the team and he realized like, hey, you guys can score goals, but you can't defend. And I think in one of the, one of the movies, like the score was like 11 to 10 or something. Just silly, outrageous, you know, score line. But he saw that there was an opportunity for them not to just lean into their strengths, which could take them pretty far. I mean, they made them champions. But they had a chance to actually become well-rounded and play what he calls two-way hockey. Strong defensively, not just offensively. Okay, so the coach, he knew that for all that they had been through together, they needed to grow in endurance. They had to persevere. They had to grow in resilience because guess what? It's not the Pee Wee Hockey League anymore. It's high school hockey. And the opposition that they faced was greater than anything that they had faced before. They needed training. However, here's the big plot, the tension in the movie, is that this new coach and the captain of the team, Charlie Conway, butted heads. They didn't see eye to eye. Charlie actually walked in thinking, what we do works. We're champions, Minnesota State champions, world champions with Team USA. What we do makes sense, it works. Look at the trophy case, it's full. So before the first practice, before the coach even arrives, he kinda, he's the captain, he's the ringleader, he gets everybody together. They start to practice with the same old routine as before. And Charlie assumed the coach is going to adjust to our training regimen. How do you think that well f- went for him? Not well. Not well. They didn't see eye to eye. So this team is on a hockey scholarship to a prestigious school. Against These are inner city kids. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. Massive implications for their future. But the captain is at odds with the coach. And now the fate of the team hangs in the balance. At a heart level, what ends up happening to Charlie is he starts to resent the coach. And that resentment only grows. Eventually, he just full-on rejects the coach and his training altogether. He walks off the team. And one of the best players on the team goes with him. So this team that had done so much together started to fracture, starts to fall apart. And the question is, like, do we receive or reject this new training? That's the question. But underneath that question, there's deeper questions. Does the coach know what he's doing? Where is he taking us? Does he have our best interest at heart, or is he just out to get us? Ultimately, underneath all of it is, can we trust him? Can we trust him? Never thought you'd learn so much about Mighty Ducks today, did you? But... I'm, I'm using this. This is not a film class. If it was, it'd be really lame. I wouldn't pay for this. <laughs> I'm using this as a way to think about the Christian life. One way to think about the Christian life is that we're a team. And we have a coach who's training us. And he wants to take us somewhere good. But he, capital H, he knows what we need. And I think the problem is we often just don't know what we need, right? We don't. We really don't know where we're going. Life can be flipped upside down for us in a moment. Look at 2020. Who saw that train wreck coming? Not me. Life can change really, really fast. Uh, Just some examples. Jobs can change quickly. Finances can change in a second. Relationships that you built your life on can erode quickly. Health that you assume would be good for a long time can start to decline, family that you leaned into, fractures sometimes, friendships end, schools change, culture changes, 
our standing within culture changes. We don't know all the things that we're going to face, but he does. And he wants us to be ready. He's a good coach. Not relying on ourselves, not relying on what we know, not relying on our preferences, but relying on his wisdom, on his guidance, his presence to lead us. And here's the question that faced Charlie Conway that actually faces each and every one of us. Are we open to the kind of training that we'll require? That's the question that was facing, or a question, not the only one, but that is a question that the original audience of the letter of the Hebrews was facing. And we're going to spend this morning learning from this powerful letter. We're going to see something really important, okay? How we respond to our training determines our transformation. How we respond to our training determines our transformation. You guys ready? Let's go. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 6. If you've got a Bible, you can turn over there. If you don't, the verses will be up on the screen momentarily. While you turn there, I want to let you guys know a little bit about Hebrews because we haven't been in this letter. So, quick summary here that I liked. Hebrews is a a written sermon. I do like that. It's a sermon. So if you ever wonder, like, what did the ancients hear when they got together? Read Hebrews. It's a, it's a written sermon, and it's sent to a group of believers undergoing persecution and temptation to waver in their faith. They were a people that were experiencing some level of spiritual exhaustion from external and internal factors. Some of them were just weary, discouraged from being emotionally worn out. A scholar wrote that phrase, and I was like, that's a great phrase. You might be here, and you might be emotionally worn out. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have have maybe been through a season like this, maybe you are in one like this, you certainly know someone who's going through something like this, and it could be you in the future, just emotionally worn out. And the crazy part about this letter is that when you read it, you figure out pretty quickly, these people, that that the, the, the writer to the Hebrews, we don't know exactly who he is, we have some guesses, but obviously an early church leader, who knew these people well, these people had started their journey really well. In fact, if you read the letter, you're going to find out that the the writer actually says, you allowed yourselves to be wronged at one point for the sake of following Jesus. Some of them were put into prison for following Jesus, not for breaking laws, God's laws, but for following Jesus. They were persecuted. Some of them actually were willing to give up property to follow Jesus because they figured... What's to come is better than holding on to what we have here. Just radical faith. Radical faith. The kind of faith that we would be like, yes. And yet, discouragement's real. Discouragement is real. Being emotionally worn out can happen to the best of us. So the question became, would they continue to make progress in the faith or would they peter out? The temptation for these disciples was to become bitter at the coach because the training was getting hard. To quit and to walk off a team and to take a few players with you. That's the temptation that they were facing. So let's read these powerful words starting in verse one, Hebrews 12, verse one. The writer to the Hebrews is going to call them in the midst of this hardship to one thing primarily and hit it from a bunch of different angles. And in your Bible, it might say the call to endurance is the header. 
And that's a good summary of what we're, what we're going to talk about. He's going to call them to endure. Verse 1 says, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and that cloud of witnesses, uh, scholars talk about what this actually means. In chapter 11, the writer to the Hebrews goes through a bunch of Bible characters and the way that they displayed their faith. So there's a good chance that that cloud of witnesses includes those people who have gone before us and have endured in their faith, but also it might involve spiritual beings that are, for lack of a better term, also part of God's family, probably God's blended family of spiritual and human beings, such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us that include a bunch of people that have been through really hard things too. Since we're a part of that, let's lay aside every hindrance. And the sin, there's a definite article there in the Greek, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Okay, what sin is he talking about? Well, depends on who you talk to. Sometimes uh, scholars think that that's a reference to just generally speaking sin, to lay aside all sin. But some scholars think that the definite article is really important, the sin, that he's talking about one sin specifically, or one big sin, maybe that's an umbrella for a bunch of different sins that he's warning them against. And I tend to to believe that that's what he's talking about. And I think the sin he's talking about is quitting, is giving up. And I can explain why. If you read the whole letter, it makes more sense. But the sin that so easily ensnares us, one way or the other, whatever that sin means, it's something that's going to hinder us. And then he says, let us run the race with endurance, the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus or looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, or the founder and the completer, the source of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So first thing he says is consider. Consider. We're going to unpack this more in a few minutes. Then it keeps going. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Again, that's why I think the sin he's talking about is quitting. If you've ever been in a spot in your faith where you're like, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I know some of us have been. I know I've been there before. So he's talking to people in that spot and to the communities that surround people in that spot. One of the things I was thinking about, take a little quick uh, excursion here. One of the things that I was thinking about is that sometimes the, the faith, Christian faith is presented as this ticket to heaven. And I want to propose to you that although that, there's some truth to that, it's more like a ticket to holiness. And the way is hardship. That doesn't mean that there isn't good, there's tremendous good. That doesn't mean that there isn't joy and blessing, there's tremendous. But the reality is, on the way, you're going to suffer like crazy. Who wants to sign up? We're not alone in this. Let's keep going. But I just want to, I just want to be honest, because some of us are struggling deeply in our faith. Some of us are going through really hard times, or you know someone who is. That's not weird. What is weird is if we pretend that nothing's ever wrong, or that following Jesus is just Ned Flanders. That's not the way. 
You can't read these words. You can't read scripture and come away with that idea. And that's okay. And I know why people turn into Ned Flanders. But I'm letting you know that the Christian faith is robust enough to deal with your problems and mine. I don't even know where I was. Verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up, so that you won't quit and walk off the team. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Who shed his blood? Right. So there's still something there that's not quite like Jesus in the struggle. You have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. I don't know anyone who's got that on their bumper sticker, but here it is. Life verse, this is my life verse, said no one ever. And yet, this is Proverbs. This is really important instruction. Endure suffering, verse 7, as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. As sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Yikes. So love is not just comfort, it's also correction in the kingdom of God. Further, we've had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them most of the time, hopefully. I think there's a bit, a bit of a different culture that they're living in. Maybe we respect, whatever. I'll set that aside. There's a sense of like, yes, when our parents discipline us, they're owed respect. They're owed respect. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? This great cloud of witnesses, this blended family of humans that have, that have been true to God, that have finished their race well, and these spiritual beings that are a part of God's family, he's the father of us all. Shouldn't we submit to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our human, our human parents, for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. Okay? You want to make a note of that? Share his holiness. That's the point of discipline. It's not to beat you up. It's not to... We've seen discipline done wrong, probably. We've all probably experienced that. Even the best parents, sometimes discipline is mixed with anger. Sometimes it's mixed with all kinds of stuff that kind of make muddy the waters. Okay, but God, is, he's not like that in us. He always does this for our benefit perfectly so that we can share in his holiness. 11, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, though, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed. In other words, like, let's go, guys. Let's go. Verse 14, the last two, three verses here. Pursue peace with everyone. So there's obviously something going on here that they're facing that has to do with relational tension, pressure, fractures maybe. Now, do we know if this is within the, the fellowship of Christians or is it outside people that are persecuting? We don't know exactly. But either way, I think the, the charge there is the same. 
It got me thinking about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus was treated poorly. He was mistreated. And yet he responded with love to his enemies. So whether we're talking about an enemy or a friend that we're experiencing a fracture with, pursuing peace with everyone and holiness is still the way forward. Without it, no one will see the Lord. This is the kind of verse that when I started as a Christian freaked me out. Because, all, because I, if you're anything like me, you see sin, you see brokenness, you see all this stuff in your life. And then you're like, well, holiness, without it, I won't see the Lord. Well, remember what we just read a few verses earlier. What is the purpose of discipline? You guys can answer if you know. Holiness? Holiness. We're going to keep. What's the purpose of discipline? Holiness. Holiness. Okay. So this isn't you fixing yourself up, making yourself good enough for God. This is something different. This is a son and a daughter in the household of God that's been trained by the Father. Okay, so pursue peace with everyone in holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. 15, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God, <clears throat> God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't an immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. Wow. That's the end of that. Okay, Esau, fascinating guy, Jacob and Esau. You might know the story from Genesis, the first book of the Bible. What is Esau famous for? If you know, you can shout it out. He sold his birthright. Oh, it says it right there. He sold his birthright for a single meal. So what Esau ended up doing was uh, he came in one day from the field. He was... He liked to be outside. He was an outdoorsy kind of guy, probably shopped at REI a lot. And he, he went out, totally spent himself. He was tired, exhausted. He came in, and then his like, clever brother, Jacob, apparently was making some food or whatever the case may be. And Esau was like, feed me. I'm about to die. Have you ever been to that spot before? It sounds a little over the top, but that's basically where he was at. He was hangry. Feed me or I will die. And Jacob, being kind of uh, tricky, he's like, nah, I will if you give me your birthright. And so without getting into all the details, this was a really big deal. This was an, a colossal part of Esau's future was this birthright. It gave him rights. It gave him access to, <laughs> it gave him access to everything that was going to be his. And he sold it for chicken noodle soup. One bowl. Not even a one bowl. I'm actually not sure if that's true, but let's just go with that. Okay? He sold it for food, for yum-yums. Does that remind you of anybody who for food exchanged life itself? Adam and Eve. That desire for instant gratification can lead to destruction. Why would he be saying this to the Hebrews? Where were they at? Think about it. They're under pressure from internal and external forces. They're being tempted to walk off the team. Why would he talk about Esau? What does he not want them to do? Give it all up for some relief. 
from their circumstances and situations. Now, I want to put one, if we can put up the slide that says consider, discern, submit, reward. I tend to think in terms of, I guess this is like a flow. There it is. What is the writer to the Hebrews telling the Hebrews to actually do? I want to propose to you that he is laying out this flow of thought. Consider, discern, submit, reward. So let's talk about number one, consider. Whatever you're facing, he's like, first things first, Jesus. Consider Jesus. If you remember that, that's what he says. He literally says, consider Jesus. Keep your eyes, verse two, keeping our eyes on Jesus. For the joy before him, he endured. And now he reigns. In other words, don't focus on you, but him. Don't focus on you, but on him. Think through and ponder his life carefully. I remember once going through a difficult moment in my Christian life. Uh, I was in a spot where I was processing through like a pretty significant loss that I didn't see coming. And without getting into all the details, it just kind of left me spinning. And I remember once being in a spot, and I was, I was surprised, I was kind of shocked. I was like, I did not see this coming, I don't... And so I'm just like kind of grappling and dealing with the, the fallout of, of somebody else's decision. And then in the midst of that, I felt like the blame was shifted onto me. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you feel blamed for something, especially something that I'm like, well, I was just informed about it. I didn't even have anything to do with that decision. If you know what that's like, it, it hurts. It just feels like it's just adding insult to injury. I felt I was so, so upset uh, for a number of reasons. But one of the things that I noticed was that it sort of felt like, I just felt like I got slapped in the face. I just felt like I'm down. Or have you ever been in a situation where it's like someone gets kicked while they're down or punched while they're down? Like, that's what it felt like. I felt blindsided. I felt so disrespected. And actually, I kind of started to spiral into anger and self-pity. My reaction was not the best. I'm not, I'm not defending it. I'm just telling you what happened. Ultimately, I just didn't even know what to do. And one day, I was actually reading the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verses 19 and 23. You guys don't have this in the back. I'm just going to read it. This is the story of Jesus. Check this out. Jesus was at a really low moment. This was right after Peter had denied him for the first time. So think about it. Relational betrayal. He's experiencing relational betrayal. He's, he's down. He's arrested. He knows he's going to die. And then he has this interaction with the high priest that goes terribly. I'm not, you guys don't have this in the back. I'm just going to read it. The high priest, John 9, 18, 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Verse 20, Jesus told him, Hey, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I didn't say anything in secret. It was all open. Why do you question me? Just ask people who heard me. Surely, like, they know what I said. Verse 22, when Jesus said this, one of the officials, Jeruvi, slapped him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. Verse 23, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, show me. But if I spoke the truth, Why'd you strike me? 
that Ananias sent him bound. And so it struck me as I'm reading this, I'm actually considering Jesus. I'm, I'm sitting like looking at him face to face and it struck me. Jesus was mocked and publicly humiliated. He was literally slapped in the face. He was perfect, I'm not. And yet he didn't give himself over to anger and bitterness. So why should I? What ended up happening in that situation was something about my need for development was revealed. And it was this, I wanted respect too much. It is possible to want something that's good too much. That's called idolatry. That the need for respect exceeded my need for righteousness. And so I was angry, self-pitying. I needed development. I didn't even know it. I didn't even know it. So when I was focused on what was wrong, how I felt wrong, I became bitter. When I turned my focus on Jesus, I became sober. Oh, there's work to do here. This is actually an opportunity not to lash out, but to love. I can address being wronged without wronging. Jesus showed me that. That's how he loves sinners like me. That's how he treated me. Because part of the challenge there was like I didn't see myself in the strike. Yes, felt like I had been struck, but I did not see myself in the strike. Because you know, as a human, as a sinful person, that sin, my sin is ultimately always first against him. It's always some devaluing of Jesus. And in that case, my devaluing of Jesus was shown in my over-desire for respect from other people. And so, I'm right there with the guy that slapped Jesus. But his response was controlled, was loving, was honest, and it was free from bitterness. Jesus was instructing me in a little bit of hardship that I was facing. So that's the first thing that I've recognized is the foundation of everything that, will, that this author is talking about. If you don't remember anything else from this message, remember this. When you are in the hardship, the first thing to do is to consider who? Jesus. To look to him. And what you find out is there's four gospels told from four different perspectives that fill out a lot of backstory. And so whatever you're going through, there's something that Jesus went through that can instruct you and me. That was just one example that I gave in a situation where I felt disrespected. That God used that situation to help me see, oh, I want respect way too much. And I care about righteousness way too little. So the first thing, what are you going through today that's hard? Have you begun to do that work to consider Jesus? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Either way, I want to encourage you and remind you, first things first, consider Jesus. Look to him. You'll be amazed at what you find out. You'll be amazed. Second thing is discern. Discern. Now, that word discern wasn't actually in the text. So where did I get that from? Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 8. Talks about forgetting the exhortation that addresses you as sons, which is, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Excuse me. Endure suffering, suffering as a disciple. God is dealing with you as sons. In other words, discern the discipline of the Lord in the midst of your situation. Discern it. Can we throw up quote number five real quick? Discipline is a really important word. The word in the Greek is paideia. I read a scholarly, a whole, there's, a, there's a, a guy who's a PhD, he did a whole 20 page, it wasn't a dissertation, but it was like 20 scholarly pages of work on this one word. It's rich. It has tie-ins to the Greco-Roman culture around the New Testament. It also has deep ties to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So I want to give you a quick quote to kind of help you understand this discipline that we are to discern in the midst of hardship. That word shows up in different places in the New Testament. Outside of Hebrews, the term discipline, paideia, occurs in the New Testament only at Ephesians 6.4 and 2 Timothy 3.6. So those are two Pauline passages. Paul wrote those. The Ephesians passage mentions a father training his children. Does that sound familiar? That's what we've been talking about. And the one from 2 Timothy speaks of Scripture as being effective for training in righteousness. Again, training. The author of the Hebrews then uses the proverb to associate the hearers with God's discipline. In short, with reference to their difficulties, they are to discern the hand, the Lord's hand lovingly training them in their right character. In other words... When you're going through something hard, do you see God's hand in it? If you don't, you're going to be tempted to quit. You just are. When you're going through something difficult, do you see the hand of God in it? Disciplining you. Training you, I think, is a really helpful word. Quote number four, we'll throw it up real quick. Regardless of the origin and nature of the hardship the readers experience, they can nonetheless rest. Here's where the good news comes in. Rest in the fact that it's God himself who oversees this process as a disciplining father. I know father can have all kinds of connotations. When we hear father, maybe you had a really good experience with dad. Maybe dad was a gift in a lot of ways. Maybe what you have are voids with dad. Maybe you have wounds with dad. So I'm not pretending like disciplining father is going to hit everybody the same way. This might be bad news for you. And if that's you, man, I feel like there's an opportunity to be reparented. God's different. Their identity, so these sons and daughters, their identity is defined by their relationship to the one who disciplines them. The readers might suppose that God has abandoned them because of their pain or hardship. The writer states that on the contrary, God is not rejecting them. He is disciplining them. For, for the writer, there is a vast chasm separating the two notions. Okay. I remember once being in a small group, probably 15 years ago, a long time ago. And it was kind of my first taste of Christian community. When I became a Christian, I experienced like the... It took me five years, but when I finally experienced... Jesus, it totally upended my life in the most beautiful way. I remember going out. I lived in San Diego. I lived in, if you guys know where Fashion Valley Mall is, right there in Mission Valley, I lived across the street. 
And I went through a season, I lived in a fashion terrace was the apartment complex. I went through a season where when I wasn't working, I would basically go out into the streets to, to share Jesus with people, with homeless people most of the time. That was a season that has never been replicated, but it was really powerful for me. And the reason I didn't do it out of duty, I did not do it out of obligation, I just did it because the heart, it felt like the heart of God was leading me out into the streets because of what I had experienced. So it was the sweetest, most refreshing season of my life. It was amazing. I couldn't wait to read the Bible. I couldn't wait to hang out with Christians. It was so, so wonderful. Then over the course of, I don't know, probably like nine to 12 months in, I noticed that something was kind of changing in me. I noticed that kind of like that, I was losing some of that maybe, some of those feelings, if you will, for lack of a better term. And I started to struggle because I felt propelled by love in the early going. And then within a year, it sort of started to feel a little bit like duty. And so I opened up to my community. I brought it up. You know, I remember sitting in a circle. This is the first time in my life that I actually went there with community. And I just shared with them, like, guys, I'm struggling. It sort of feels like the love of God, which felt like so close and dear, it feels kind of distant. And I don't know what's changing. I don't know what's happening. And it was, it was a powerful time for me just to be known, just to share what was going on. And obviously, when you do something like that, People are like, me too. Like it, it just, it, it brings people together in a, in a really cool way. Now here's the crazy part. I've had time to reflect on this now, you know, 15 years later. I realized something. I was over, I had an over desire for something. I had an over desire for comfort, for warm feelings. I had an over-desire to feel good about God and myself. And so when that was exposed, it was like, oh, shoot. I think maybe what I'm longing for is more comfort than Jesus. I want the discomfort to go away. So that was a situation that in hindsight, I can now see, oh, God was disciplining me. It wasn't, I don't think it was punishment. I think there's, this is probably still under the training or anything else, but I had an over-desire for comfort that was expressing itself in ways that I did not understand. And over the long haul, any relationship that is based on feelings alone will not last. If you've been in a romantic relationship for any period of time, you know the feelings don't last necessarily in the same way that they start. What could end up happening, though, is something far better. What could end up happening is like a resilient love that's not driven by feelings, although feelings are a part of it, so I don't wanna discount feelings. It's driven by something bigger, something greater, something that can sustain it. And so over the last 15 years, I have thought about that time early on in that first year of following Jesus. I think about it fondly. I think about it, but that wasn't the end. That wasn't the end. There was way more going on in here than I ever realized. And the Lord was letting me experience some pain 
so that he can invite me into a process of being purified from over-desire. Over-desire for respect, over-desire for comfort. Because ultimately, that could be an expression of idolatry. And if you don't know this, you, you will now. What leads someone to walk off the team is an expression of idolatry. It's, I don't love this coach anymore. It's, I think I can do better somewhere else. So God was kindly and lovingly, he allowed me to go through that honeymoon period, but man, it's, it needed to end. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be resilient. I wouldn't have anything. I would just be following Jesus because I feel good about him and I feel good about me. And that won't get us through the hard times. That won't get me through the hard times and won't get you through the hard times. So discerning the discipline of God is super important. But here's the crazy part. You usually can't do it in the moment if you're anything like me. It's easier to do it in hindsight, actually. But what you can do is you can walk with people who can help you. And one of the things that the book of Hebrews talks about, one of the most famous passages, is where the, the writer of the Hebrews says, exhort one another daily so that you will not become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So part of what ends up happening when we become, when, we, when our relationship with our coach, by the way, I'm using coach, you can use dad too. There's actually an athletic metaphor within these verses, so I'm just leaning hard into the athletic metaphor more so than dad. But when that relationship with coach is strained, we need other teammates to be like, hey, come on. We need other teammates to, to remind us like, hey, I know it feels this way, but he wants us to win. <laughs> He's not out to get you, man. So discerning the discipline, number two, if you can throw the, uh, those four words back up here. Discerning. When you're going through something hard, if you're going through something hard today, can I just encourage you, if you have yet to discern the hand of God at work as a father who's disciplining you, who's training you, don't move on. Don't make any snap decisions. Don't, don't do anything hasty. Don't press the eject button. Wait. Discern. Consider. Discern. This is the foundation of everything because what we find is that he is a father. He's a father to the fatherless. What we figure out is that Jesus sent, that God sent his son Jesus to rescue us because sin is a master that wants to destroy us. What we figure out is that the discipline of God is for our formation so that we will last, so that we won't fall apart, so that we won't crumble, we won't fracture, and we won't go the way of Esau looking for a quick out, instant gratification, and before you know it, we have given up our inheritance to avoid suffering today. We just walk away from Jesus. Because here's the thing. Man, this is like a, I can't, I have to keep it brief. Just read Hebrews, if you can. If you have a chance this week, just read it. I don't think it takes that long. It's just like a sermon. I know some sermons are longer than others, and I know we're trending in that direction this morning. But it's, it's worthwhile. It's better than this. I'll tell you that right now. It's better than this. And what the writer to the Hebrews does, what he says to his people oh, over and over again is hold on. Hold on. 
Another way of saying this is submit. This is number three. Submit. Hebrews 12, verse 9 and 10. We're almost done. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so we can share in his holiness. Quote number three. The cause of their hardship and trial, the Hebrews that that he's writing to, could be the result of striving against him. It could be persecution or any other type of unpleasant circumstance. So I just want you guys to see that this covers a wide range of possible situations. Whatever the hardship the readers are going through, they're to view it as discipline from the Lord. This discipline will train them to be who God has called them to be. To become like Jesus. Just as Jesus endured undeserved hostility, so the two the readers must also endure as divine discipline any similar hostilities, specific hardships, or possible consequences of sin. I mean, we could preach sermons on each of these. Sometimes the suffering that we go through, we're just there. It's just a bad situation. Maybe other people's choices are affecting us. Other factors that we can't control are affecting us. So the situations like that, where we just kind of feel like, I'm along for the ride, and it's bumpy. Uh, Sometimes, it could be the consequences of sin. Sometimes our own sin brings suffering on us. I don't want to get too much into that, but it's not hard to imagine ways in which if I operate in certain ways, it may seriously impact my relationships. I may forfeit the privilege of being in relationship with certain people if I treat them a certain way. So whatever it is, whatever the situation is, we're called to submit. The possible consequences of sin peace is probably the hardest one, if we're honest, because if I think about it for myself, it's, it's hard to accept the consequences of sin. It really is. It's hard to see a relationship end. It's hard, it's hard to see opportunities, doors close. It's hard to see all kinds of things. It's hard to, to see like a, a calling forfeited. At the same time, if we have discerned the loving heaven of our Father, then it means that whatever we're going through, he's gonna be with her, in it with us. And he has a way of taking what is less than ideal and making something really good out of it. So whatever you're facing today, I want to encourage you. This word submit, it's not our favorite word. Uh, It's loaded. In Christian culture even, it can be a loaded term. But really all we're talking about is yielding to God and saying yes. That's it. It's not talking about anything other than yes, Lord. Yes. I remember once uh, being in a situation that, that called for radical submission. Uh, I was, I don't know, 30 years old maybe. I was living in, in Uptown San Diego. I was a part of the Restored community, Restored Uptown, and I was in an interesting place. I had been at working for a law firm for about eight years. I was there for a really long time. Feels like an eternity nowadays to, to work in the same place for eight years for a lot of people. Uh, but I was there, 
And what ended up happening to me was that over the course of time, I started to feel more and more of the call of God in my life into ministry. And by that, we're all called, if you're a Christian, you're called to ministry. But what I'm talking about is into like full-time pastoral ministry. But there wasn't necessarily any clear way to get there. And, but my desire just, just grew, grew to, to pursue it. It was actually there from the very beginning of walking with Jesus. I just didn't know what it was. But over the course of time, it became more and more clear. Oh, you just want to do, I just want to do what you guys do. You guys being Andy and Brad and Tom. Tom was also there at the time. I want to do what you guys do. And I think there might be calling and enough gifting where this isn't crazy to actually pursue this. But the years went on, and I just wasn't sure how it was going to end up taking place. My wife, Heather, was actually pregnant at the time, or maybe, no, she wasn't pregnant anymore. We had one young child. Josh was, was one year old or actually less than a year old. Addie was going to be coming shortly. All that stuff was happening. A lot of life change, and my wife stepped back from her job. She was a teacher, second grade teacher out in El Cajon in San Diego. So we dropped down to one income, which if you don't know what that's like, rough, rough to go from two to one because our expenses were also increasing at the same time. We're having kids. So there was pressure. And then we had all this school debt, good debt. It's not really good debt for whatever degrees, we had debt, all kinds of pressure and pressure and pressure. And one day, very unexpectedly, I remember getting called into a meeting. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm curious what, what we're going to talk about. It was, it was with the pastors. I thought maybe there was like a, a GC that needed help or something, like an opportunity to, to step into, to meet a need. And what they, what they actually told me was, oh, Brad, who was the, one of the pastors there at the time, uh, is going to go plant restored Los Angeles. Now, here's the thing. Brad had been with us from the beginning, and there was always the idea that he's going to go plant a church. We thought it was going to be East County, San Diego for a while. We thought maybe it was going to be in Encinitas. But all those things were put on pause for a while. But through a series of events, it became clear the time is now for him to go to L.A. to plant what is now Restored L.A., a wonderful church. If you're up in the San Fernando Valley area, go check it out. Go visit. Wonderful, vibrant church now. But at the time, it was just a dream. Just like I had a dream to maybe be on staff one day. That was just a dream. And the next thing they told me really surprised me. So I thought, oh, they just want me to know before they tell the church or whatever. We want you to step in and take Brad's spot on staff. There's only so many spots on staff that the church could actually support. And so all of a sudden, now I'm called into ministry with no plan of how to actually do that. The church could pay me like some, but it, it wasn't enough. It was like a newer church is a few years old. It wasn't enough. So all of a sudden, here I am. I'm like, I think this has been building up since I became a Christian to step into this space. And I had no idea how much this would be for me. <laughs> how much ministry is actually because I think God loves me. And this is a unique place where all my ish comes out to deal with. All my over-desire comes out for respect, all the things I've been talking about. Again, hindsight, God's fatherly hand on my life. But at the time, it just seemed like, well, I don't know how we're going to make this work. But as Heather and I talked about it, we prayed about it, it was like, I think we need to submit to this, and we'll figure it out. 
how this is going to exactly work out. And then we did. And then very quickly, very soon, Royce, who was one of the other pastors, he was a marketplace pastor, he still is there, hits me up, we sit down, and he's like, I got a plan for you. And so what he did was he had properties you know, all over San Diego at the time. He was a business owner and a wonderful man. And he's like, I'm going to take these properties, and if you want to, I'm going to turn them into Airbnbs for you. And then you can run them. And then you can basically supplant. You could, you could make what you need to support your family and pursue this calling. That's what we did. I remember listening to N.T. Wright while scrubbing toilets. Hard to connect. I, need, I, don't, re- I don't recommend it. But that was the plan. The plan was, you're going to scrub toilets. <laughs> and that's okay. And I did that with joy. But it was one of those moments where like, I had enough sense of God's in this to submit to it. And then the reward, here I am. You know, several years later, I'm a part of a second church plant. I've been here since the beginning. And this wonderful community, God would have used somebody else if it wasn't me, but he was pleased to, to use me and, and submitting to him was necessary. And the reward is here. So man, whatever you're going through, it could be like a financial thing. It could be an emotional, like feeling emotionally overwhelmed with something. It could be a loss. It could be a health thing. Whatever issue, if you guys, there it is. Write this down. This will help you. This will help you. Because the alternatives are not great. Can you guys throw up the slide with misunderstanding, resentment, rejection, and ruin? Not as fun. But ultimately, this was, I think, what the writer to the Hebrews was concerned would happen to his people, to his church. They would misunderstand God. I, used, I started off with D3. Charlie Conway, the captain, I think really misunderstood his coach. And because he misunderstood the coach, he became resentful of his training and he rejected it and walked off the team. And I really do think that that is what is at stake. If we don't consider Jesus, if we don't discern the Father's discipline in the midst of hardship, we're gonna misunderstand him. And that root of bitterness that the writer talks about, that's haunted me for years, that resentment towards God can lead to walking off the team. And guess what? It never just affects the person who walks off the team. It always affects others. In the Mighty Ducks, it meant that one of the, one of the characters walked away, but the whole team was affected. And I think that I've seen that happen in churches time and time again where somebody walks away resentful, bitter, and it's never just contained. It's never contained. It always affects a bunch of people. But in hindsight, the tragedy is, I don't think, I don't think that that process of discernment, the process of consideration took place. Otherwise, we might have ended up in a different place. So the big idea, if you're taking notes, the big idea, is that holding on to Jesus in hardship produces holiness. There's more I could say, but we're running out of time. So I'm gonna call the band back up, and I'm gonna invite you to stand if you're able.
We've got about 20 minutes. I think one of the things that I've realized over the years is that unless I see Jesus holding on to the cross for me, I'm never going to go hold on to him in the midst of hardship. The fact that Jesus endured the worst suffering humanly imaginable for sinners will allow me to hold on to him through whatever suffering I face, which most likely living here where we live, it's not going to cost me my life. But even if it did, I have a promise of resurrection. What it will more likely cost me is respect. What it will more likely cause me is discomfort. What it will more likely cause me is being misunderstood sometimes. What it will more likely cause me is a bunch of stuff that Jesus went through too. But he held on for our sake. And the letter to the Hebrews makes it really clear. That sacrifice on our behalf cleanses us from all sin. It washes us from the inside out. It makes us a whole new people. So this isn't like a try harder plan. This is a look to Jesus who obeyed on your behalf plan and submit because God is turning you more, like into, more into his likeness as you hold on to him. Your job is just to not quit. That's your job. Don't quit when it gets hard. And if you're not in a spot where that even seems like a possible thing, come alongside someone who might be tempted to quit. You're going to want them to come alongside you too when that day comes for you. So with that said, can we throw up the four words, the positive ones? Discern, there you go. Man, where are you at today? What are you facing today? What pain or hardship are you going through? I want to invite you to consider Jesus, who laid his life down for you, who went through hostility. He went through everything for you and me so that we could be free, so that we could experience the love of God in our hearts and in our lives and through our lives so that we could give up the over-desire for whatever that might cause us to quit, the over-desire for control, the over-desire for approval, the over-desire for power, whatever. Consider him. If anybody had a reason to become bitter, it was him, but he didn't. Discern the Father's hand in your life, man. Like, what's he doing? How's he calling you to trust him? And then what's the reward? He has one for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that what you want for us is for us to share in your holiness. And I thank you that we don't clean ourselves up. We just submit to your process. You are making us holy. This process will yield the fruit of righteousness and peace to all who are trained by it. Would we be a church that's willing to be trained by the process that you have us on. Holy Spirit, would you apply these words into the lives of the people who are here or who are listening? 
And would you be pleased to conform us, make us more like your son, who loved even his enemies in the midst of the hardest moments of his life. And that reveals what you're like. You love the unlovable. You put up with things that no one else would put up with for love's sake. Would we be the kind of people who reflect him? Thank you, Father.